So I think that Merrill embraces that opportunity, which is multiple entry points, Merrill Edge, Merrill One. They have something that they announced last year called the Customer Experience Workstation. They're thinking about it from a more client-centric point of view, which is what needs to happen instead of from the advisor point of view. And I think that that's been a real sea change. Everything they do is more about serving clients better, developing stickier relationships and hyper-personalizing as much as they can their offerings to clients rather than going with the one-size-fits-all. It's another fantastic day and welcome to episode 90 of the Wealth Tech Today podcast. I'm your host, Craig Eskowitz, the founder and CEO of Ezra Group Consulting. If you work for an enterprise wealth management firm, an asset manager, an RA aggregator, or one of the many technology vendors in our space, then Ezra Group can help you make better business and technology decisions. Please check us out at EzraGroupLLC.com. That's E-Z-R-A-G-R-O-U-P-L-L-C.com. This podcast features interviews, news, and analysis on the trends and best practices all around wealth management technology. Although we also dabble in a few other areas as well, such as marketing, which is why I'm so excited to get this interview with April Rudin going. April and I go way back, and it's been wonderful to see her grow her marketing firm, The Rudin Group, which you can find at therudengroup.com, as well as her own personal brand, where she's become one of the leaders in the industry. So a couple of housekeeping tasks before I forget. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss future episodes. Also, please go to our website, EzraGroupLLC.com, and register for our upcoming webinar called The Journey Towards Data-Driven Wealth Management. If you have any involvement with your firm's data infrastructure or data asset strategy, or if you use the data, you'll want to attend this webinar. You can find more details and register at our website, EzraGroupLLC.com. And now on to the interview. to introduce my guest for this episode is April Rudin, the founder and CEO of The Rudin Group. April, welcome. Craig, so good to be here. A long time no see. And even though we're not in person, it's great to see you and hear your voice. Likewise, it's wonderful to see you. Yeah, we used to spend a lot more time in the same place in the past. And now we did. We, we did. Each other. I know. So I used to call you my follower, remember, when you were sitting behind me, right, right on different flights, there we were. <laughs> we'd be on the same plane, we'd be on the same, yeah, we're, we're always traveling around together. Same conference, mm-hmm. yes, yes. So I, w- I just want to put, put out there that you are widely acknowledged as the top marketing strategist for the financial services and wealth management sectors, and you're recognized by On Analytica as the number one influencer in wealth management. Congratulations. Well, thank you. I mean, I think, um, so I'm really proud of that accomplishment because I think what it does is it validates the use of social and digital Mm -hmm. in financial services. Um, You know, my kids might laugh and say it's my most Kardashian moment, Mm -hmm. Um, but I think it's something that um, advisors need to really think about is raising their own profile, raising their own personal brand and what that means to their firm because people can't really interact with corporate brands but they can interact with people. So always important to have a great personal brand. 
at least your kids understand what you do or know what you do for a living. My, my kids, I had to hire them for them to figure out what it is that I do for a living. And do they know what you do? They do now. Now? Yeah, it took a while. They used to think I made PowerPoint slides for a living. Don't you? Well, yeah, kind of in a way, but <laughs> it's a little more than that. Yes. Great. So let's right. jump on. We were brainstorming ideas for what we're going to talk about. And then you've got so much content out there and you've got so many thought leadership pieces um, and you know, people look to you for where the market is going and the direction of a lot of things. So you, you had written something on, on one of your many, many content uh, distribution platforms. I think it was Forbes, where you, you were talking about the new digital thundering herd and why uh, advisors and wealth managers shouldn't are over-focusing over on millennials. You, you want to expand on that? Sure, Craig. So this is one of my very favorite topics because um, I think that, uh, you know, I founded my firm almost 13 years ago around the idea of millennializing your brand. And the idea there was that there's so many old, tired, wealth management brands, whether they're bank brands, RIA brands, um, technology brands, everyone in the ecosystem, a lot of really old brands that didn't resonate with younger investors. And so um, the idea there, I think, is still relevant to um, appeal to a wide range of investors and buyers, because certainly today, um, even tech vendors, right, are selling to a younger age person. So the idea that your brand needs to resonate across multi-generations is still really valid. But I think this whole idea really went awry was in terms of over-segmentation. In other words, people thinking these products or these services are for millennials. So, you know, enter robo-advisor, right? For example, uh, millennials are digital. Millennials want online trading. Millennials want online portfolios. Millennial, millennial, millennial. Well, when you dig down into it, you can find out that um, it's really not about millennials. So for example, uh, the Capgemini World Wealth Report year over year produces statistics saying that the highest digital adoption is really among ultra high net worth baby boomers. And it stands to reason, right? Why? Because they are generally, well, formerly mobile, right? Global. And who thinks that they are not really digitally savvy? Of course they are. And so um, it's no surprise to me, but I think that people miss an opportunity by over-segmenting and um, thinking too narrowly about digital offerings. Um, similarly, the piece that you're talking about um, with our friend Kabir Sethi, um, Merrill Lynch says that 85% of their clients in the 10 million plus cohort were the fastest and quickest to digital adoption. Um, so I think that, um, you know, it really flies in the face of what people are thinking. So there's no reason to over segment. You want to have a lot of different entry points, but no reason to say, you know, this product or this service really is for millennials. This one, you know, ahead of International Women's Day is for women, for example. This one is for, you know, this other narrow cohort or segment, it's better to just have multiple entry points and let the people choose. You've said this numerous times that it's not just their age that defines what an investor is looking for from their wealth manager. No, it's really about behavior, right? So, um, you know, you and I 
could be Gen X, could be baby boomer, but we're really more digital leaning. Um, you brought up your kids. So I have two sons. One of my kids is very um, digitally oriented when it comes to financial advice and the other one's not. So over segmenting based on age really doesn't work. Uh, it reminds me sort of of Chinese astrology, like you're born in year of the dog. And that means that everyone in that year is the same. And we know that that's not true. Um, and I'm sure much of your audience, um, you know, men and women both realize that women are not all the same. And so women are, cannot be a niche and having products oriented to women, especially when they represent 51% of the population doesn't really work either. That was lost on a lot of firms that started up their female only targeted robo advisors or other firms that just didn't get a lot of traction because they didn't realize that that's not, it's not a thing. It's not a thing. It's not a niche, right? I've been writing about that for a lot of years also. I mean, how can there be products that go to, you know, actually not a, only a niche, but, you know, a greater percentage of the population than even men and, you know, reaching women Women are an important segment, um, but there are certain behaviors and not certain products um, that you need to focus in on and certain life cycle events. I mean, for example, I mean, you know, if you want to go to women for a minute, you know, the statistics on women are really crazy. Like 75% of widows change financial advisors within the first year of their husband's death. And it's probably no surprise to us, but it might be a surprise to some advisors really haven't taken the time to develop a relationship um, with both pieces of a couple, right? A couple should be thought of as two different units, even though they're one household. Exactly. Yeah, and, and, you know, and oftentimes in, in, in uh, relationships that are functional, the husband and wife work together on these things and they're a team. So why not approach them that way rather than pitting one against the other? I, I find the best firms are the ones that help the spouses collaborate and help the spouses learn rather than trying to, you know, tailor apart or saying, well, you want this and you want that. What do you want together? You're, you're, you're living together. You've got children together or if you do, or, you know, in-laws and parents together. So how are you going to solve these problems together? Yes. And also women outlive men generally. And so women are becoming the inheritors. Women are also creating wealth themselves uh, a large number of women are trying entrepreneurship for the first time. So women are a really important cohort for financial advisors to think about, but not to over-segment, right? So you want to think about behavior and um, life cycle events, like I just mentioned, for example, living longer than men. You know, these are statistics that advisors should pay attention to, but it doesn't mean that they should come up with pink products or mm -hmm. a pink website or my other... Ugh. or pink, um, uh, what was I going to say, or offering female advisors. I was just talking to somebody yesterday who was talking about how to recruit female advisors because they wanted to really expand their practice. So even, you know, knocking down the long hold, uh, long held um, thought that, you know, women want to work with women. Well, I think, you know, all of these maxims really can't come true, right? So some women might want to work with women. Other women don't want to work with women because you can't generalize about what all women want to do. Mm -hmm. So hiring female advisors doesn't mean that you're going to be able to attract 
female clients, um, I think people just need to add a little thought to this and they would come to these conclusions themselves. Yeah, I think you, when you said multiple entry points, it's also there's no one right or wrong way to approach a particular group of people because they say they're all different and they, 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 they sub-segment out in many different ways. And just like some people get along with other people better. Some, I know men who get along with men get better. Men can get along with women better. Like all the people who work for me, all my direct reports are women, right? And so you could say, well, maybe I work better with women. You know, that's a, you know, a, a different topic, but um, everyone's I'd have different. to ask the women. Yeah, you'll have to ask them. I'd have to ask the women though. <laughs> They're still there, so they haven't quit yet. So they must like it. They must be appreciative of something. But yeah, but everyone's different. Everyone approaches their, their lives different. Everyone approaches their wealth different. Uh, ever approaches the use of technology differently. And one thing you mentioned in your article uh, was resistance to digital adoption. Can you, can you talk about that and like how, how you're overcoming that? That's the opposite of which ones are doing the best, which, which ones are resisting it and how to overcome that. So I think that um, the resistance to digital adoption really has come from the financial advisory world, right? And come from the enterprise firms rather than from the end users. Um, in this article, we really explore that it was the clients pushing up on the firms to really gain access to their accounts online because they wanted to have real-time information. And I think the pandemic really drove a lot of that also um, with, you know, in terms of adoptions. It's unfortunate, right, that of course the pandemic has been so awful and a tragedy for so many people around the world. but you know, it took a pandemic to actually drive digital adoption and for firms to actually um, get over their security concerns, get over some of the concerns that they might have in terms of digital and really just embrace it because there was no other alternative. So, you know, you could be just as, you know, unsecure as people say, you like, you could have a bunch of files and leave them in a taxi, right? You could have, you know, files can come, you know, from all over. But I think now that we've taken this big, strong leap to digital, I don't think there's ever going to be any going back. So even those financial advisors and firms that, you know, believe that it's a relationship business, which of course it is, um, they can just think about digital as freeing them up from routine and repetitive tasks, so they have more time to build relationships. So I think the resistance has really been on, on the part of the industry, right? Not on the part of clients. Your article is something we've been talking about for a while. It's how Merrill Lynch seems to be leading the industry and they're one of the largest firms that's a wirehouse. And usually the largest firms tend to be slower and sluggish and can't innovate. You have Merrill with their Merrill One product uh, and other, other uh, technology first initiatives seems to be doing the opposite. Do you have any insight into how they're doing that and how they're, they're beating what we're, what's called the innovative, the innovators dilemma? Yeah, so I think that uh, Merrill embraces that opportunity, which is multiple entry points, Merrill Edge, Merrill One. Um, they have uh, something that they announced last year called the, I think it's called the client experience, the customer experience workstation. Mm -hmm. So in other words, they're thinking about it from a more client-centric point of view, which is what needs to happen instead of from the advisor point of view. And I think that that's been a real sea change and all of that is led by Kabir Sethi. So under, under him and his teams, he's been um, you know, really a leader 
in recognizing that it's all about the client and it's not so much about the advisor, right? Um, and so everything they do is more about serving clients better, developing stickier relationships and hyper-personalizing as much as they can their offerings to clients rather than going with the one size fits all. Um, so I think some people, some firms are still stuck in that, And but I think you're right, Merrill's done a great job of breaking that down so with the multiple entry points. Hey, I want to take a break from this episode to talk about one of my favorite charities, the Invest in Others Charitable Foundation. Invest in Others is a nonprofit that supports and empowers financial advisors who give back to their communities with overwhelming generosity. Now in its 15th year, Invest in Others has raised and distributed millions of dollars to worthy charities that are run by or assisted by financial advisors both in the U.S. and abroad. The Invest in Others Foundation is kicking off 2021 with a restock of the shelves campaign. This past year, demand for food from nonprofits was at an all-time high. Last year, more than 50 million people experienced food insecurity. Now that the holiday season has ended, supplies at many food banks and shelters have dropped, but demand has not. To help restock the shelves, Invest in Others will award grants of up to $20,000 to nonprofits who are fighting hunger in their communities. If you work in the financial services industry and also volunteer for a 501c3 nonprofit that's in need of food items, apply for a grant from the Invest in Others Foundation on its behalf. They want to help you restock the shelves in your community this January. Applications will be accepted now through Friday, February 5th at investinothers.org forward slash grants. So if you want to put your uh, 501c3 nonprofit's name in for a grant of up to $20,000, please go to investinothers.org forward slash grants. Hyper-personalization I hear is a buzzword a lot. Who, who do you think is doing it well besides Merrill? Well, I mean, that's a great question. So I, I generally don't, you know, there, there are a lot of people doing it well but I think that the definition and the thought behind hyper-personalization, hyper-personalization of what, right? So it can mean hyper-personalization can begin with marketing, right? Thinking about which segments and who you want to market to. So thinking more about what are your value, what is your value prop and what do you offer to um, different people and how can what you offer be targeted to um, each of these different sort of clients so that they can understand what you offer and how it benefits them and how it solves for pain points. And some of the firms we work with are really all of their marketing is, is all about them and nothing about who their customers are. So for example, some of the wealth tech firms that we work with, we try to get them to see that they need to have messaging and they need to put out materials that talk about the pain points that they solve for rather than how they work. So people become vendors, particularly become obsessed with themselves by saying things like, you know, we use AI or we use machine-based learning or we use this technology or we use that when really to end clients, all they care about is this pain, this is my pain point, this is broken, how can you fix it? And then similarly on the part of banks and um, uh, wealth management firms, they sometimes put out messages that, you know, we've been in business for 100 years 
we have X number of branches, we have X amount of client satisfaction, when all of those things are all about them and nothing about the pain points or, or things that they do to, to solve and work with clients. So I think that this idea of hyper-personalization is just beginning. And I think it's one that we'll see over the next five and 10 years really come to fruition as data informs people about um, different behaviors and they can create a customized experience for clients. So your advice to large wealth management firms would be, they're not that into you. Don't be so into yourself. You're obsessed with yourself. Focus more exactly. on what the clients I mean, people are. are obsessed with themselves. Um, uh, of course they are, um, but they shouldn't be exactly because nobody cares about you. What you really want to show is empathy and care about your client. So um, that's one of the reasons why sometimes marketing that's done in-house um, seems very insular and all about us because people get used to repeating all of those same messages without thinking about this very important point that we're talking about right now. Um, I find a lot of technology companies also are very into themselves. Like I was mentioning before, you know, we use AI, we use machine-based learning, we use NLP, we use whatever it is that we, we're using and, and we do it for this many clients over this many years, over this many whatever, is more about beating their own chess than about what pain points they solve for. Um, and it, it doesn't get very granular. So firms also have a tendency to talk more about um, here's what they do um, you know, in a general way rather than saying specifically, these are the pain points we solve for. So you know, everybody wants to pretend like they can do everything. And what's more important is to be best in class in your field and offer narrow services rather than wide services um, so that people can really understand what it is that you're offering and buy your services. That reminds me of a video I saw from um, at a conference where they were talking about how every wealth management firm seems to be the same and they're all using yeah. the same images and the same graphics. And they're saying, we're specialized. We focus on women, men, you know, retirees, new business, yeah. old business, you know, right. young, old, basically everybody. And you can't do that. And basically you're saying you don't, you don't exactly. really focus on anything at and all. And then we have stock photos, right? Here's stock photos. Here's a couple on a beach. We're in retirement. Here's a yacht. Here's what retirement means to us. And all of that really just glazes over in people's eyes. And, and it, it really is meaningless. So drilling down and figuring out, um, you know, what specialties you offer, but, but really communicating in a way of solving pain points, um, whether that's for, you know, more retail clients and a robo-advisor, whether that's for family office clients, higher-end clients, and regardless of the services that you're offering, it, it's just so important to figure out what it is that you offer and use plain language to describe it. I can't tell you, I mean, one thing I don't miss about trade shows is um, all of the booths and all of the talk that uses the same words over and over again. We're digital wealth management, we're digital transformation, uh, we're a data provider, we're this, we're that. I mean, all of these things become meaningless about what you do. Again, I mean, I've probably repeated it ad nauseum on this podcast, but it's really critical to say 
why you do it, right? <laughs> what is the point of doing it? Or how can you help people just by performing these functions? You know, I grew up in Detroit, which you know, like I always tell people, no one wants to look under the hood. They just want to get in the car and drive from point A to point B and that's it. They don't need to know how it works. It's a Simon Sinek, you know, the, the why question, you know, why yes. are you in business versus what? And you're always going to sell more if you explain the why and, and, and your customers understand the why versus exactly. the what uh, or the Yes, how. I've heard him speak also. And I think the why is really important. And but then eliminating the how, right, sometimes in, in the first round, right, it's just the, the why in telling your story. I mean, if you, you want to talk about that a little bit also, I mean, People, you know, storytelling is a really effective way of communicating with end clients. But I think, again, sometimes advisors and firms take storytelling to the nth degree. Like, I get it that everybody's excited about the fintech or wealth tech firm that they've started or they're growing. But if the name of the firm is something that, you know, is your in-laws name times your city you were born in or some esoteric meaning, like nobody really cares about that again, right? So you don't need to add that to part of your story. Um, you know, I think that um, what people really need to do in terms of storytelling is to talk about their process, right? Um, the process in terms of, you know, how did they get to where they are today and what qualifies them uniquely to solve those pain points. Again, really just a narrow focus. And then less is always more in client communications. Also, people tend to just overly communicate. Um, websites are unnecessarily long um, and so on. I mean, the idea is that you want people to call you and get more information. Exactly. And so I wanted to go yeah. shift, shift gears one second into um, something you mentioned earlier about about going to web yeah. about going to conferences and you know that's where we we used to spend a lot of time at conferences. Now everyone's on webinars, but you uh, wrote an article about why no one wants to go to your webinar. Why is that? Why don't why don't people want to go to webinars? Aren't they the thing to do now? Everyone's everyone's on well, Zoom all there, day. You just answered your own question right there. If everybody's on Zoom all day, why would anybody want to go to a webinar? I mean, what? What I think, you know, some of the event companies and some of the, um, you know, sponsors and some of the firms have done is to spend too much time thinking about um, recreating events, but recreating events with only one track. So if you and I were at a conference together, Craig, we may or may not be at the keynote. We may or may not be at the sessions. I mean, we would probably more likely be in the hallway right, having conversations with people. And I think that's really the greatest benefit or one of the best benefits of conferences is from a networking standpoint of view. But what happened with the pandemic is that most conference companies and many firms just focused in on putting out more and more content and then putting it out over Zoom. So how can people absorb or why would they absorb so much content when they really you know, are busy because work from home can be very busy, right? In terms of taking care of your family, homeschooling, like all of that. Um, so I think the idea is that, and, and also people might register for these webinars. So they give you a false sense of hope. 
but then they don't really show up because it's the same thing over and over again. So it needs to be really compelling. It can't be long. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, really content that's focusing in on uh, pain points again um, could be effective, but I just think that there is an oversaturation um, since the pandemic of webinars and content that people cannot possibly absorb. Most of it gets ignored. Mm. So what do you recommend for firms that still want to reach out to prospective clients and present information to them, share information up with the obvious you know, goal of gathering leads? What other, what other uh, tools are out there for so them? I think that there are a lot of tools out there now. Um, we've been running quite a few events that are just online networking. So it can be networking without content. You don't need to have content to invite people to meet and communicate. So that's one thing. I think email marketing is having a resurgence and a renaissance. So people are reaching with email marketing, but again, short, sweet, punchy subject lines, right? Giving people a reason to open. Um, I think LinkedIn Live has been a great platform, highly engaging, interactive, allowing people to meet and greet and uh, even, you know, see screens, do product demos, right? But again, it really has to be on the short side. I think people not only are, have webinar fatigue, but also the length of content is kind of crazy. Like, why would you want to go to a one hour webinar, right? That's the standard 45 minutes and then 15 minutes of questions. Um, so I think people aren't thinking creatively about it. They're just taking something that worked uh, offline and bringing it online. And I think it just doesn't really work well. It reminds me of firms that were, when we first started digitizing things in general, they were just copying offline processes exactly. and moving them completely yeah. online, like forms. Like you have a form to fill out. Well, let's do the form online. Well, why? Right. Why does that have to look like a form? Just because we had a piece of paper, you don't have to show me a virtual piece of paper. You can do it any, any other way. It's like when we used to, a long time ago, when um, uh, earlier computer technology, they'd show an actual desk on the screen with a picture of a roller desk. And you, a roller deck. Roller deck. De yes, the word. roller deck. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Roller decks. A roller deck. And you'd have to, you click on the roller deck. Roller decks. Roller deck. See, I got you doing it. You click on the picture of the Rolodex to get your contacts, right? There's no reason to have that you know, virtual little exactly. desk on your screen. You know, so you had to move, it took a while to move away from that. So we're probably doing the same thing when it comes to online communication that we're, we're trying to recreate our physical world. Exactly. In the virtual world I mean, you know, if you think about it, all of the content, the networking, all of that can be hyper-personalized now. So that's why I paused when you asked me about hyper-personalization. And instead of having a webinar and thinking and aiming for having many people join, that's, you know, I completely agree. That's taking this old line off, you know, offline thinking and moving it online. You do not need to have 200 people attend your webinar for success, but the measure of success is having two people who end up becoming buyers. So I think all of these old measures are gonna go by the wayside as people really just do some deep thinking around what their goals are. It's not about the quantity, it's all about the quality. Hmm. It reminds me of the 
the dot-com bubble in the 2000 where everyone was paying millions of dollars for yes. companies that had eyeballs. Like how many eyeballs do you have? Well, eyeballs don't convert into dollars. They're just people yeah. looking at your website. The same thing if people looking at your webinar, if they're not buyers, they're not qualified, if they're not warm leads, they don't convert into a, a sale. Exactly. I mean, all these old measures, people come all the time with how many you know, followers do you have? How many clicks did you get? How many this? How many that? I mean, you know, you can get a lot of clicks. Uh, you can have a lot of eyeballs. And, you know, but at some point in time, it's all about the quality of the people, the level of the people. So being hyper-personalized, hyper-targeted to the people that you really want to see your product or service or the people that you really want to meet. And sometimes that, you know, people want a silver bullet, like I'm going to have a webinar and invite all these people and do it all in one shot. When think about being hyper-personalized, maybe it's better to just do a product demo and go one by one by one, right? This way you're able to give someone your full attention, their full attention. They can ask questions in the privacy of, you know, just one phone call and one chat rather than, you know, showing up for a webinar that's clearly targeted to sell a product. So no matter what people think, everyone knows the reason you're doing a webinar is to sell your product. Mm -hmm. Yeah, don't try to, don't right. try to sugarcoat I mean, Everybody it. knows that. They know you're, selling, know you're selling a product, product. right? Exactly. That's right. Wow. And speaking of selling, we're out of time. And I want to thank you for being on the program, April. It's always a pleasure. I'm glad we could work this out. I know you're very busy. You have a lot going on as the number one oh. digital influencer in our space. So thank you for, for uh, Craig, it's so nice to see you online. I look forward to seeing you in person very soon. One promise. day soon, I promise. We will be together. All right, cue again. the music. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Hey, it's Craig again. So here are my takeaways from this conversation. Of course, the, the digital, the new digital thundering herd, you read that article on Forbes from April. It's really, it's really good uh, read. Not doesn't take long. Pick up a couple of great uh, tidbits from there. 85% of Merrill's clients in their 10 million and plus cohort are digital adopters, which is surprising. Uh, it's all about behavior. Uh, it's not related to demographics specifically. Uh, clients should be, clients should be uh, segmented by their behaviors, not their age or even by their wealth. Hyper-personalization is everything to do about serving clients better, developing stickier relationships. I know it's, I, I, I hate these hypey terms um, that they're, they're overused, but this one seems to fit and seems to be getting traction and also seems to uh, have a lot of benefits for firms, not just of Merrill size, but all the way down to even single advisor firms should be thinking about how to really personalize uh, their services, not just their marketing, but their services to their clients. Um, I like to talk about Merrill Lynch, how they're shifting their focus from advisor to client, talking about process, less is more in client communication, and finally, uh, networking without content. You know, when April's talking about email marketing, keeping it short, using LinkedIn Live and Clubhouse and other types of, of tools rather than webinars.
I mean, I think we're still going to be doing a couple of webinars, as I just announced, but uh, it's not for everyone. So I hope you got a lot out of this podcast. I know that I did. You can find the transcript of everything we spoke about on our website, EzraGroupLLC.com. And please remember to go to our website and sign up for our newsletter, where you will get uh, once a month an email with updates and uh, some industry trends and some links to some interesting articles that we found across the industry. And you will not be disappointed. Thanks again for listening. And we'll talk to everyone again soon.